Hey, everybody. Thank you. Appreciate you joining us today, whether you're doing that in person at one of our campuses or online, either way, just super glad that you're here. And believe it or not, we have made it to the halfway point in our Be The Church journey. Now, if you're new and you're wondering, what am I talking about? We've been exploring as a church how to live out our faith outside the walls of our building, to to move from being people who just go to church to being the church wherever we go. And so to mark this milestone of making it to the halfway point, I want to share with you an amazing Be the Church story. This is a story that can only be written by God himself over nearly two decades. It all started in the early 2000s when our founding pastor, Richard Swift, was invited to teach a training conference for pastors in the city of Coimbatore, India. And so not only did Richard say yes to that invite, but his wife, Lori, said yes as well. And so as they got ready to go and teach this conference, they rearranged their schedules, which is no easy task for a pastor and uh, elementary school teacher. So they got those dates cleared so they could go. They purchased the airline tickets and everything was set. And then unfortunately, just a few weeks before the conference was to take place, there was some sort of conflict with the venue and the dates for the conference had to be moved. And unfortunately, Richard and Lori were not able to adjust their schedules to be able to do the conference. And so Richard decided that since they had the dates clear for that week, And because they had already purchased tickets that are, of course, were non-refundable and non-transferable, that he and Lori would go to Coimbatore, India anyway, and just see if there were any ministries or outreach organizations that were working in that part of the world. And maybe they could, you know, meet those folks and see the work that they were doing. So Richard did in what, for me, I believe has to be the most God-like miracle in this whole story Richard went online and did a Google search. We were shocked. We didn't even know he knew what Google was, let alone how to use it. But he did a Google search, and one of the first results that popped up was a ministry outside of Coimbatore called Bit Lit Ministries. Turned out it was a Bible translation and Bible literacy organization that was working with unreached tribal groups in the mountains of southern India. And this ministry was run by an Indian pastor by the name of Ebenezer Uday Kumar. So Richard sends an email to this Indian pastor that he's never met, just knows from a Google search, and says, hey, my wife and I, I'm an American pastor, my wife and I are going to be in the city of Coimbatore during this week, and we'd like to see if maybe we could meet you and just see the ministry that you're doing. And remarkably, Pastor Ebenezer emails back to this American pastor he's never met before, just gets an email from and says, yes, not only would we love to meet you, but we would love for you and your wife to stay with us in our home during the week that you are there. And that is exactly what happened. Richard and Lori flew to Coimbatore. They stayed with Ebenezer and his wife, Hepsi, and their two small children, Finney and Johanna. 
Now, you can imagine if you knew Lori, you know, as a school teacher, an elementary school teacher, she immediately fell in love with Finney and Joanna. And they, of course, immediately fell in love with her. And as they spent the week together, Richard discovered that uh, Pastor Ebenezer's work was not just to translate uh, the Bible, the Gospels, into a language that it didn't exist in before, but he also had uh, lay pastors that went up into the mountains, into the villages to share the gospel with uh, these unreached tribal groups, and one in particular, the Arula people. And for years, Pastor Ebenezer had been working on translating the gospels into the Arula language. Unfortunately, the Arula language was 100% uh, auditory. It, was, it didn't have a written language. There was no alphabet, no nothing. So Pastor Ebenezer literally started from scratch. He had to create an alphabet, and then he had to put words together. And then he was in the process, when he and Richard met, of trying to translate the gospel into this brand new language. And so over the, the, the next two decades, we as a church began to partner with Ebenezer and Bitlit. That one-week trip, that God-ordained moment, not only developed an amazing lifelong friendship between these two families, but it also started a partnership between Cedar Creek and Bitlit Ministries. And over those two decades, we've been able to send several teams uh, to uh, Bitlit to serve alongside Ebenezer. Uh, we also sent some folks over who taught our home group leader training course to these uh, village pastors. Uh, we connected Ebenezer with the Wycliffe Bible Translating Organization, you know, the gold standard in uh, Bible translation. And finally, I think it was about nine or 10 years ago, I received in the mail a package from Pastor Ebenezer. And when I opened it, tears just flew down my face because it was the first ever copy of the Gospel of John written in the Arula language. And that, that's an amazing moment, right? But it's just part of what's needed because obviously the majority of the Arula are not able to read. They didn't even know they had a written language. And so the big need was to then be able to get that gospel to them in their heart language, to try to make uh, audio recordings so they could hear the gospel message in their heart language. And Ebenezer's been working on that for a long time. And, you know, we've maintained our relationship, even though we haven't been able to send teams over there over these last couple of years between the pandemic and the politics in India. We've maintained that partnership. In fact, many Sundays, Pastor Ebenezer joins us online on Sunday morning. So Pastor Ebby, if you're there, we love you, man. We appreciate you. But um, I guess most of you know, if you've been around Cedar Creek, you, you know, sadly, Lori lost a long four-year battle with a terminal disease, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. She passed away this past January. But in one of her final conversations with her daughter, Sophie, she shared with Sophie that she hoped that she would be remembered not just as a pastor's wife, not just as a school teacher, but she hoped she would be remembered for her passion to share globally the mission and vision and gospel of Jesus. Now fast forward to three weeks ago. On September 21st, I received this email from Pastor Ebenezer. It says, dear pastors and outreach leaders, greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Today is an auspicious day for our ministry. After long efforts, we have initiated by all means to start a new ministry that is now a milestone for our work. God showered his blessings to this humble beginning. Joseph Finney, my son, was only knee high to Pastor Richard when they visited us the first time. So Pastor Richard used to kneel down to speak to Finney. And both of my children, Finney and Joanna, were so close to Lori Swift, mainly because she used to bring toys to them every time she visited India. But then he says, my son Finney, who has grown, is now an instrumentation and control engineer, and he is in his finals for becoming a technician in information technology. And so Finney, out of gratitude to God, and to show a small offering of his life to God, has taken the position as director of the Lori Swift Memorial Audio Bible Recording Center in our mission place. Pastor Abby goes on to say the first book to be recorded in Arula is the Gospel of Matthew, and that's being recorded right now today. Our whole Arula New Testament will be recorded soon and will be distributed to the people group through MP3 format to cell phones throughout the entire state of Tamanadu. It is great joy to share this happening through our mission in India. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of impact we have when we choose to be the church. That's the kind of legacy in this life that really matters. And I don't care who you are, where you've been, what you've done or not done, that's the kind of thing God wants to do with your life. You don't have to be a pastor's wife. You don't have to travel to the other side of the world. You just have to be willing to make the mission of Jesus the priority of your life. You just got to be willing to step through whatever doors God opens for you. You got to have the courage to be willing to do the unique things that God has shaped you to do in order to share the message of hope that he's placed in your heart. And so today, I, I wanna talk about doing that across the cultural divide. Being the church to people who are culturally different from us. And you don't have to fly to another country. You have people right around you now who look different than you, talk different than you, think different than you, and live dramatically different lives to the way you live yours. We are called to be the church for them as well. In fact, notice what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 19. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice that that verb go that Jesus uses literally means as you go. 
as you are going through your life, bridge the cultural divide to share the gospel of hope with all of the nations wherever you find them. And so to help us do that, we're going to look at an encounter that Jesus had with a woman that required Jesus not just to cross a cultural divide, but to cross a cultural divide that was marked by over 700 years of hate and prejudice. Now, unlike Zacchaeus that we learned about last week, we don't know this woman's name. We just know that she is a Samaritan woman at a well. This encounter is recorded in John's Gospel, the fourth chapter. But to really understand this encounter, you gotta understand the history of the divide that existed between Jews and Samaritans. It started in 722 BC, 722 years before Jesus was even born. The Assyrian nation overthrew the nation of Israel. They invaded and conquered Israel, including the city of Jerusalem. And as was their way as Assyrians, they took a portion of the people from the country they conquered and took them back to their nation. Only they didn't just choose random people, they chose the most educated, the wealthy, the highest skilled, the healthiest. They chose the cream of the crop and left the common folk behind. But not only did they haul off Israelites to live in Assyria, but they also brought Assyrians and had them live in Israel. And over time, those left behind Jews and those transplanted Assyrians begin to mix and mingle and intermarry. And their children, their biracial offspring became the race of people that we know and that is talked about in the Bible as the Samaritans. 70 years after the exile, when the Israelites returned to rebuild Jerusalem, they hated those Samaritans. They often referred to them as those Samaritan dogs. That's why when Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan, it's so shocking to the Jews because they didn't even know such thing as a good Samaritan existed. There are no good Samaritans. They're all bad. But now Jesus is going to go from just telling positive stories about Samaritans to a personal interaction with a Samaritan. And as we unpack that encounter, it shows us four practical ways to bridge the cultural divide. Four things every one of us can do to bridge the cultural divides that exist in our world today. The first thing we have to do is be intentional about making connections. Be intentional about making connections. Why? Because our natural tendency is to connect with people who are like us. People who look like us, talk like us, think like us, vote like us, live life the way we do. And so crossing that divide requires intentionality. And that's what Jesus did. This particular encounter takes place as Jesus' ministry's uh, popularity is on the rise. 
Jesus is becoming more and more popular throughout the region of Judea. In fact, by this point, his disciples had baptized more believers than John the Baptist's disciples. And people are talking about him all over the region. And some people are saying, I think this guy may be the Messiah. But for Jesus, who was not ready at that time to reveal his true identity, he decides to take his disciples and return to Galilee, his home state. And John puts it this way in verses three and four. He says, so he, so Jesus, left Judea and returned to Galilee. But then look at what he said. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Circle that phrase, had to go through. Why would John tell us that? Why wouldn't he just say he went back to Galilee? Well, if you understand the geography, it would seem obvious, right? Because Judea is down here in the south. Galilee is up in the north, and between them is Samaria. So obviously, you'd go through Samaria. It's the most direct route, but that is not the way Jews went. Jews so hated the Samaritans that they went the long way around to avoid going through Samaria down the coast of the Mediterranean, doubling, tripling the length of their trip just to avoid going through Samaria. Why? Because if you went through Samaria, you might run into one of those dirty, filthy Samaritans. No self-respecting Jew wanted to have that happen. But Jesus did. Jesus was intentional about going through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman who was broken and empty and chasing after relationship after relationship, trying to fill a hole that only her heavenly father could fill. Now, obviously, because Jesus was God in the flesh, he knew that woman was going to be at that well at that time, 12 noon. I'm not suggesting that you can do that, but I am suggesting that you can be intentional about getting out of your cultural comfort zone to connect with people who are different than you. You know, when I think about this partnership with Cedar Creek and BitLit, It's obvious to me. This is a a God-orchestrated connection. I know God wrote the story, but I also know it took the willingness of a South Carolina school teacher to say yes, not just to go into a strange city, but staying in the home of someone so dramatically different than her culture. I'm not saying that to be the church, you need to go and stay in the home of strangers, But I am saying you need to have the courage to say yes, to walk through the doors that Jesus opens. And yeah, that may be going on one of our short-term global outreach trips, but it also may mean just walking across the road to meet those people who live in your neighborhood who come from a different place, who speak a different language, who cook a different kind of food and live a different kind of life. The door God opens for you may be just having lunch with that person at work that comes from someplace different than you. Crossing the cultural divide starts with being intentional about connecting with people who are different, but it doesn't stop there. There's the second thing Jesus shows us, and that is we gotta connect on common ground. To connect on common ground. It's so easy to see the differences that divide us, whether it's the color of skin or a language or a lifestyle. 
And so because we so easily see those differences, it's so easy to focus on those differences, to get hung up on what separates us. And that's even more so in our culture today with the social media algorithms driving us into our little tribal groups of people who think like us and vote like us and respond like us. Bridging the cultural divide is not pretending that those differences don't exist. It's just choosing to see past them and to connect over the things we have in common. That's what Jesus did. Notice verse five and six. It says he, talking about Jesus, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well. Now, is that just me, or does that seem like a whole lot of words just to say Jesus was hot and tired and stopped at a well? Why does John go into all of this detail? Why does he want us to know that it is that specific well that this encounter takes place? Here's why. Because while Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated Jews, they both loved Jacob. Both Jews and Samaritans saw Jacob as a patriarch, a founding father of their faith. This was a point of agreement. In fact, it may have been the only thing that Jews and Samaritans agreed on, and Jesus met her at that point of agreement. And look, Jesus not only met her on common ground, but he connects with her over a common need, thirst. He's at the well because he's thirsty. She comes to the well in the middle of the day because she's thirsty. Notice what Jesus does, verses seven through nine. Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. And the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. See, you need to understand, Jesus wasn't just saying, can you drop a well in that bucket and get some water for me? Jesus didn't have a cup to drink out of. So Jesus was saying, can I get a drink of water from your cup? That's why John says she was surprised, she was stupefied, she was mystified because she's like, wait a minute, you're gonna put your Jewish lips on my Samaritan cup? We don't do that. That's a line too far. In fact, verse eight tells us that Jesus' disciples were not with him. He had sent them into another village to buy food for lunch. And I would say it's a good thing they weren't there because this might've been too much for them. As good Jewish boys thinking about their master, their rabbi drinking out of a cup, that had been drunk out of by a Samaritan woman, they might have walked away and said, no, that's over the top. But listen, listen, listen. This certainly, yes, for Jesus, this was a huge step towards racial reconciliation. But I believe with all my heart, Jesus was not trying to make some personal political statement about how woke he was to be willing to drink from a Samaritan's cup. I believe Jesus just recognized these were two human beings with a common need, two people who both needed a drink. You know, when I think about the Swifts and the Udi Kumars spending that week together, it's hard for any of us to imagine how wide 
that cultural divide was. How dramatically different their lives were. But I can also see they had some things in common. Yes, their love for Jesus, but even more than that, these were two couples who were in ministry together with their spouses. These are two parents who were trying to raise their children the best that they could. See, being the church across the cultural divide is not about trying to be less of who God made you to be and where he planted you to grow up and live. You don't need to be less American, less Indian, less white, less black, less Hispanic. You just need to be willing to be more like Jesus and to find the common ground and the common connections. And then number three, the third thing Jesus teaches us about crossing this divide is we need to be open to honest spiritual conversations. Be open to honest spiritual conversations. And church, here's, here's where we tend to get this backwards. We want to witness to people and we want to preach to people without being willing to drink from their cup. I, I want to get your soul into heaven, but I don't want to deal with you here on this earth. Well, I'll invite you to come to my church with me, but I'm not going to invite you to have a meal with me in my home. But listen, because Jesus was willing to drink from her cup, he earned the right to go deeper relationally with her. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 10, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. You see what he's doing there? He's going deeper. This conversation was about drinking and water and cups and Jesus takes it spiritual. There's a living water that you'll never get thirsty if you drink it. He's getting spiritual. And, and if you read verses 11 through 29, and I hope you will sometime this week, you'll see this interesting back and forth spiritual conversation that Jesus has with this woman. Because when Jesus turns the conversation spiritual, she does what a lot of people do. She turns it to religion. She makes it out. She deflects to a religious debate. You know, we Samaritans, we worship God over here on this mountain, and you Jews, you worship in the temple, and, and that's the difference. And Jesus, I love this. Jesus said, that's an interesting conversation. Go get your husband, and we'll talk about it more. The woman's like, I don't have a husband. She's like, you got that right. You've had four husbands, and the guy you're living with now, you're not married to. And you first read that, and you think, oh, my gosh. Like they were just, you know, Jesus was being nice, and then, boom, he smacks her over the head with her sins and failures. But listen, this is not a bait and switch, right? Jesus is not being nice to her, and as soon as she lets him in a little bit, he beats her over the head. Jesus doesn't step through this door to bash her over the head with the Bible. Jesus runs through this door to free her from the emptiness of pursuing relationship after relationship, and only what God could bring into her life. He runs through this door out of love for her. And we need to remember, church, the reason we're being the church 
It's not so we can connect with non-believers and as soon as they let us in, we could hit them with all their sins and flaws and failures. No, it's just about connecting with them to share with them the hope of Jesus that brings peace and joy into our lives. In fact, I'm convinced that one of the biggest barriers to being the church is spiritual arrogance. Our approaching people with this idea that we're better than you and and what we believe is right and what you believe is wrong. And even if that's true, that's not our job. Our job is just to live out the hope, peace, and joy of Jesus and care enough to share that with hurting people around us, whatever culture they are from. In fact, that's why whenever we work with global partners, when we send teams to serve with our global partners, we never go with that American arrogance that our nation is so known for. We don't show up in the third world and go, we're the hero Americans, we're here to save you. You need to do it our way because we're right and you're wrong. No, these are true partnerships where we just come alongside and serve them because they know how best to reach their culture. We don't show up and try to tell. In fact, I can tell you this, in the 20 plus years that we've been working with global partners, we've learned way more from them than they've ever learned from us. And I can stand here and personally testify, and I can speak for Pastor Richard as well, that he and I both have learned more from Pastor Ebenezer than he's ever learned from us. Richard and I both watched in amazement as Pastor Ebenezer walked this journey of faith in one hand and deep, deep grief in the other as his wife and his mother-in-law were killed in a car accident just a year or so after Richard and Lori first visited And then we celebrated in joy with him years later when when God brought an incredible godly woman named Dorothy into his life and they were married and finished raising the kids and worked in ministry. We were celebrating with her and then we were heartbroken to watch as she succumbed to a long battle with cancer. This man lost not one but two people in his life. You don't think Richard and I learned some things from this amazing man of God more than any American pastor or teacher or counselor could ever provide. There's no arrogance in our cultural divide work. See, when you walk through these doors to be the church, it will impact your life It will impact the lives of those you connect with, but most importantly, it will impact the lives of all the people in both of your lives. And that leads us to the fourth thing we need, and that is to wait patiently for God to work. Wait patiently for God to work. This is so cool, don't miss this, because the story doesn't end with one woman's life being changed by Jesus at a well. Because she goes back to the village of Sychar and she tells all of her Samaritan friends, you got to come meet this guy. This guy, this guy told me stuff about me that there's no way he could have known. I think this guy might be the Messiah. And so Samaritans from that village started heading out to that well. But at the same time, 
Jesus' disciples finally return with his lunch. And they're like, Jesus, we got your lunch. Jesus said, I've got food you know not of. And they're like, what? We went all the way 10 mile round trip to bring him lunch and somebody else fed him. Who fed him? Peter pulled out a sword and said, I'll cut off his ear. Who, who fed him? Jesus said, no, 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 guys. My food is to do my father's will. And then Jesus makes this interesting statement in verse 35. Check it out. Jesus said, hey guys, you know the saying four months between planting and harvesting? Yeah, they're like, yeah, we know that. But Jesus said, I say, wake up and look around because the fields are already ripe for harvest. And I believe in that moment when the disciples looked up across Jacob's field, they saw a whole village of Samaritans coming their way. And in fact, disciples and Jesus would spend two full days in the village with these Samaritans, just getting to know one another. And John says, as a result, many Samaritans put their faith in Jesus. Now, I don't think any of us can even begin to imagine the generations of Arula people whose eternities will be changed forever because they can hear the gospel message in their heart language. And you will never know the impact of your being the church, whether it's as simple as bringing in some toothpaste and toothbrush or walking across the street or across the office or across the room. You will never know the impact, but you can trust this. God is faithful. And he wants to write a story of your life. And he is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine if we're just willing to say yes to whatever he calls us to. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for these amazing truths. I thank you for this picture that's over 2,000 years old and I thank you for this story that's just been written in the last 20 years. You are the same God who moves and works in both of them. But these aren't just stories about special people doing special things in special places. This is just about ordinary people who trust you to do extraordinary things in and through their life. And so I pray for every person listening to my voice today. God, I pray that they would know and believe that you have a plan and a purpose and a story. It may come out of their pain. It may come out of their abilities. But it always comes out of you moving and working. So, Father, help us run after you as you run after those who are desperately in need of you. And it's in your name that we pray, amen.